the city itself is part of a much broader food system and we're not thinking about that and we're not recognising that we need to actively build in resilience. Hello and welcome to One Bite, a podcast exploring the Australian food system. I'm your host, Xavier Callio, a food researcher and sustainability student at the University of Sydney. This series focuses on the impacts of COVID-19 and how we build back better. We will meet Australians working from farm to fork and beyond, gaining diverse perspectives on our food system and how we can shift to more sustainable, resilient and fair food. So grab your knife, fork and spoon and join me as we digest the Australian foodscape, one bite at a time. Hello and welcome to One Bite. Xavier here. Today I'll be speaking with Councillor Jess Miller from the City of Sydney. I'd like to start by acknowledging the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation, the traditional custodians of the lands that we're on, and pay my respect to their elders past, present and emerging. For over a decade, Jess Miller has worked with a broad range of organisations to design, lead and implement change. She was elected to the City of Sydney Council as part of the Clovermore Independent Team in 2016, one of the youngest people to hold office at Council. Part of her motivation was to ensure that the views of younger people were represented, especially with regards to the nighttime economy, and that the city continue to set a global example of how to deal with the changing climate. Jess's key areas of expertise are in environmental systems, specifically urban ecology and urban forestry, and also local food systems. She is an advocate for a slow city with lots of active and public transport, character, community, sport, colour, and creativity. Welcome to One Bite, Jess. It's great to have you on the podcast. Thank you. Thanks, Xavier. I want to start with what are you really enjoying eating right now? Oh, well, I just had a pretty epic muffin from Acre down at Camperdown Commons, but at the moment, the blood oranges are still pretty good. They're about to finish the season, so... Yep. I'm kind of taking as much of that, those citrus. Yep, they're definitely right at the end there. Yeah, <laughs> there's a few. It's a bit hit and miss. Like you'll buy 10 and, you know, you go, oh, I don't know about four of these. You pop, pop them in the cake. So Nice. Yep. Nice. And could you tell us a little bit about your journey into food? Yeah, so I grew up on an organic herb farm down on the Mornington Peninsula, which is about an hour and a half southeast of Melbourne. My dad's ethos for the whole nursery was very much about growing things from scratch and doing things the old-fashioned way. So we had we didn't have any kind of mechanical potting up systems. It was all hand-propagated, hand-seeded. Both of my parents were pretty crappy cooks, despite the fact that we had the availability of such incredible herbs. So fortunately, as a result, both my brother and myself kind of got into hospitality fairly early. So the Mornington Peninsula is known as a hospitality and particularly as a wine region. So we both kind of got part-time jobs in cafes and restaurants straight off the bat. Chris ended up being a chef, so he's got a restaurant down in Rosebud. Yeah, so it was partly, you know, wanting to eat good food, I think is a core motivation, but also... I think food for me was very much tied to ritual and culture and through just friends of the family. We had a really good friend of the family, the Del Grossos, who used to grow apples down in Red Hill. 
and you know every year we'd go down for their big posada day and stomp on all the tomatoes and all that sort of stuff so there was this sort of sense pretty early on that the capacity for food to deliver ritual and to provide livelihoods and to provide community was very front of mind. Yeah, absolutely. It's interesting. Your brother became a chef and you got into permaculture. Pretty much. Yeah. Like I just, it was quite funny because I remember sort of being a young, a young person and, you know, probably about eight or nine. And I was just like, you know, I'm going to be a fashion designer. I'm going to be a blah it was I wanted I wanted whatever I was going to become to be the furthest thing from growing plants as possible so you can imagine like my old man thought it was hilarious when I told him at some stage that oh I've got this new job what is it oh uh, working for the um, <laughs> uh, nursery garden <laughs> yeah so he thought it was really funny that inevitably I've come back yeah and so I want to talk to you a bit today about the impacts of COVID within the city of Sydney mm. and, and I guess specifically a bit about kind of how that's impacted food security within the city. The city of Sydney has a lot of international students, there's sort of temporary visa holders, lots of casual workers. So, you know, we've also seen the city itself pretty much be shut down and you know, that's obviously affected businesses and hospital and that kind of thing. So how's that kind of come through to you at council? Yeah, it's come through, it, it, it's come through in a myriad of ways. So it feels as though you kind of, now when we talk, even now that we begin to talk retrospectively about COVID, given that there's been a few months now, I suppose there was this initial response and it had to be very reactive. And that to an extent, was where the city was actually very well positioned to to be able to respond. This is something we'd thought about. And I think unlike many other organisations, we actually had a pandemic plan ready to go and we had, you know, 10,000 odd PPE kits already. So the city was very quick to respond. But it's interesting, I think COVID at a macro level has done a really interesting job of exposing where systemic weaknesses exist and one of those was most certainly exemplified by the amount of international students and young people who who were really struggling to get hold of food and that to an extent is that's one sort of version of food security is the ability to be able to purchase or access nutritious food but then I suppose at the same time we were trying to respond to this immediate crisis and we donated lots of money to food charities and Addison Road and Oz Harvest to make sure that people could eat. It also, for me, highlighted something that I was already kind of struggling to get on the agenda, which was the city itself is part of a much broader food system and we're not thinking about that and we're not recognising that we need to actively build in resilience within the system. And by the system, it's not just the city, it's the city, it's the the metropolitan region, it's the state, it's distribution logistics, storage, point of sale, ownership, all of that has to be thought about. And so I think it it has meant that, that those issues are starting to get on the agenda, which is a good thing. Yeah, and I will. I want to come back to that 
and and talk about that a bit more. But just to kind of look at sort of some of the things the council has done in response, mm. uh, it's been quite amazing, you know, in terms of the million dollar grant to Oz Harvest yeah. and the support for the Addison Road Food Pantry and just looking at sort of a report from Clover Moore about the exponential growth in need, even for Meals on Wheels. So, you know, there's been all of these kind of amazing organisations coming in and, and sort of trying to fill fill that place of food relief. But again, as you say, it's it's this systems view whereby we actually rely on food relief to support people who kind of can't afford to access food in the first place. Mm, yeah. And I, I mean, I'm of a, I'm in two minds about that. I think we did the right thing. We uh, certainly, absolutely. like we had to ensure that, you know, from a needs basis, food, shelter, absolutely we needed to make sure that that was provided. Despite the fact that legally we actually don't, like that's the thing that I, I, I say we, we had to, but... You know, we're a municipal government. It's actually not our responsibility to do that. It's very, but of course, there are. It's our community, so of course, a fundamental belief of the city is that it's a city for all. So of course, we had to respond to that. But yeah, I think the the charitable model, to an extent, is fundamentally unsustainable because we can't continue. Like we can do, we can do the initial response, but you know, you fill someone's belly, it empties. And so how do we come up with another way of making sure that what we have, which we have a surplus of food, we have an absolute bounty of food. How do we try and make sure that the distribution of that is equitable? Yes, the the food relief is definitely a band-aid and, and, you know, it was super important to address that immediately. And I think it's those longer term kind of things. And, you know, it's interesting saying sort of, you know, you're a municipal government and it's not your responsibility. And it is in the Human Rights Declaration. So mm. it is technically a federal government responsibility. Mm, of and, course. you know, we do have these three levels of government in Australia with the federal, state and local. And I'm just wondering that local government is really immediate on the coalface and, and stepping up and doing things like declaring a climate emergency mm and aligning policies with sustainable development goals and that kind of thing. So how do you kind of see that local government level fitting in or, or what kind of power is there at that level, I guess? Not enough. <laughs> <laughs> I think, I mean, we, we are in a, we're in a very fortunate position in that we're very close to, we, we are a part of the community. I think it's I don't understand. I hear that when federal and state MPs don't even live in their electorates and it, it blows my mind that you can be that detached from your kind of core job, which is to represent your community. I think increasingly, particularly when it comes to climate responses and climate risk, local government is going to increasingly be able to use the levers that we do have in different ways so one of the things that's come to light probably in the last 12 months has been the publishing of these uh, climate risk exposure maps and once they're out of the bag and this has been mapped for the whole country so we're talking about fire risk flood risk sea inundation and also also soil compaction which wasn't really something that I knew a lot about but when you have drought conditions the soil 
contracts, that's when you have sinkholes and buildings falling into into the earth. The one thing that government, local government generally does have full responsibility for is approving planning applications and zoning and deciding well, what goes where within their own local government area. So knowing now what we do know about levels of risk, it puts us as local government into a very interesting position whereby should we approve the construction of a dwelling knowing that there's a good likelihood that that dwelling may be damage due to climate change, is it then our responsibility, us as the taxpayer or governing body, to then either like do we say, well, actually, no, it's too risky to build there, so you can't build there, or do we start sectioning off parcels of land and saying, well, no, you can't extend there because it's too high risk? Whose job is it? Like, Who pays is really the question mm. when it comes to, you see, those very dramatic images of pools falling off cliffs and everyone is you know up in arms going why didn't you build the seawall why who's going to fix it who's going to rebuild my house who's going to do this and we've we've had a few isolated incidences but what we really need to recognize that as these climatic conditions exacerbate these incidences are going to become pretty normal Mm. and the knock-on effects because we are such a hyperinflated property market are huge. Like if you are a very if you are one of those people who has a eight property portfolio and you're mortgaging them against each other, which is often the case, if you wake up one morning to only to find that five of your properties are no longer insurable because they pose a huge risk or a, or an untenable risk of being burnt down, flooded, washed away or sunk, you know, that changes everything. Yeah. Everything. The system absolutely falls apart. Mm. But at the same time that that system is falling apart, it does open up opportunities to think about, well, how do we create cities and systems that can be resilient, that are more adaptable? And, you know, it's a very taboo topic, of course, but... When a place is completely devastated by bushfire, is it a tenable option to continue to rebuild Mm. these places? Mm. Not only from an emotional and trauma point of view for these communities, but financially, like if your home has been burnt down recently in in the last bushfire season, you might get your insurance money to rebuild, but are you then going to be able to insure it again? Mm. And what's the implication for whole communities who effectively, where do they go? Yeah, yeah. That The fact that the insurance companies have been modelling climate scenarios and factoring that in for a long time really yeah. says something about about the system. And, and the disconnect between... You know, it's, it always astounds me that such a major party who believe at a fundamental level in the market yeah. at this point in time is absolutely blind and deaf to what the market is telling it, which is that this is real, we need to do something about it, we need to do something about it really quickly, and that the level of risk is, is not tolerable. Mm. 
And I think, you know, it really is about looking at resilience at a system level, but then also kind of digging down and looking at resilience at lots of different levels. And I think that food system resilience is a really important thing and something kind of COVID has has highlighted. It's really encouraged people to engage in the food system in a much more fundamental way. Mm. And I think councils do have the ability that well, they set the kind of planning frameworks and, and that kind of thing. And the city of Sydney has set up the city farm and you've got 24 community gardens and worked with sustainable Chippendale and your footpath gardening policy. So mm. obviously the city does really value and see merit in these kinds of things at a community level. And I know that during the um, pandemic, green space and open space has been something that's come to the fore. Hugely, yeah. I think there's two parts to it. I think the community food stuff is really important and, you know, there's a hot topic at the moment in Erskineville about, you know, this this trade-off, this group of people that have a piece of public land that they're gardening on, the city. I personally think that that land would be better used for affordable housing but it does open up the question of, well, what is the purpose of the community garden? Because we need to be pretty realistic about the capacity for traditional community gardening models to feed people. They don't. They, they have an abundance of value. They do feed some people, of course. They are fabulous places to enable composting, education, connection, avoid social isolation, it's a beautiful antidepressant, all of those things. Is it a viable plan B to feed a city? Absolutely not. Mm. So I think that as we move into the next sort of 10, 20 years, we need to be rethinking the connection between a city population, the way we use land, and then looking at you know alternative like closed environment agriculture, aeroponics, aquaponics, And questioning now, especially since the use of space seems to be changing, like is there, is the best use of an office block space to accommodate seven hours of people working from a desk each day, or should that be used to produce X amount of tons of food every six weeks Mm. or both? Mm. So these are kind of the fun conversations. And then, yeah, of course, COVID with open space, the nursery and garden industry have sold out. They've had, you know, the best year ever Mm. because people are, for whatever reason, reconnecting with horticultural practices and agricultural practices and wanting to be outside. Yeah, absolutely. And I think, you know, those kind of multifaceted benefits around you know, urban ecology, and we can include water sensitive urban design and greener cities. And, you know, there are amazing examples of utilizing what would generally be wasted space in terms of one central park and the vertical gardens or the Yerubinjan rooftop garden, you know, so there are these underutilized spaces. And I know that the city commissioned a report from Black Thumb looking at that kind of closed system sort of thing. So something else that I wanted to touch on was you brought a motion in December last year, pre-COVID, mm. remember that? Mm, um, vaguely. Securing Sydney's food future. Yeah. Which is now kind of, you've worked in with Alex Greenwich to yeah. look at a food resilience strategy for New South Wales. Yeah, yeah. So we, so the motion went in through December. So what I really wanted to 
do was sign the city up to the Milan Urban Food Policy Pact, which I think is a really it's not the only framework. It's not maybe not the best framework, but it's I think it's a really useful framework to think about food security because it not just looks at agriculture, it looks at systems and people. So it's about safe, fair, accessible, healthy, nutritious food being available in urban places. So that's part of it. But we at the city are different to say municipalities in Europe or America, whereby we have less control over, say, transport and and other facets. So what has happened since through COVID is that Alex and I sort of sat down and thought about, well, what would, you know, I mean, he's, he's fantastic. He's a brilliant local member and he's also the chair of the Environment Committee. So what that enables him to be able to do is to look at inquiries And so he gave a fantastic sort of um, member's statement that sets the agenda and says, we've had drought, we've had bushfire, uh, we've had COVID. Food is actually really important and it's something that has to be addressed at a state level. And so it's more powerful for that to be coming from him. And then what will happen next is that we'll start working on a terms of reference or he'll, he'll obviously lead that and I'll provide a bit of input from the city's point of view. But what an inquiry does is it, it it invites a whole lot of people who are deemed relevant stakeholders to come and just share their experience and knowledge so policymakers can hear it firsthand. Ideally, we'll be going and looking at some great examples of regenerative agriculture. We'll be considering, I hope, the future of cotton and water-intensive crops and looking at the possibility of hemp growing in New South Wales as something that should be that is a viable industry and that could be a really good regenerative industry. Uh, we'll be talking to obviously the big players, the IGA, like the the big players, not the IGAs, the um, the Woolies and the Coles. Um, but yeah, I think it's a really it, it has been forever. I think since anyone's really picked apart the problem. And now more than ever seems to be a good time to start looking for opportunities, particularly given that the export capacity of local producers has been diminished yep. and, and, is, and continues to be at risk. Yeah, and, and I think it's quite interesting that food generally isn't on the policy agenda and it's not on the climate change agenda. And there is this real kind of divide in food research and policy actually Mm. around production and consumption and that lack of that kind of systems approach. So one thing that uh, you mentioned the Milan Pact, one thing that the Milan Pact also looks at is food waste, which, you know, if we think about local government and Mm. municipal waste, it's sort of 35, 40% food waste. Yeah, yeah. So being able to make our cities much more circular 100%. 100%. Yeah. It's, I mean, it's all connected. Like I'm not, I don't feel like I'm doing anything very progressive or radical at all. All I'm doing is remind, like all I generally seem to be doing is reminding going, but you do know that the water and the soil is really important. And then this is connected to this, connected to that. And then ideally trying to find political avenues or institutional avenues to just get people to talk to each other because that's what seems to be quite insane is that it's not as if this thinking isn't going on of course it's going on 
You know, you've got farmers for climate action over there. You've got the horticultural sector putting heaps of money into R&D to say, well, how are we going to, you know, what are we going to do with irrigation? You've got the waste industry. But I think it's not often enough that these human beings who each have a beautiful amount of topic expertise are invited to have conversations with one another and disagree with one another. And that's going to be, I think, really interesting as part of the inquiries to test some of these assumptions about what do farmers want what do farmers need what is the role of the city you know like we all we all depend on each other so deeply yeah we do um so i think that yeah that conversation is well overdue so i want to just just change tact a little bit and you've talked about food and gardening as a Trojan horse of fun Mm. and a great way for sort of slipping some of the environmental change conversation in. Yes, because I'm tired of talking about climate change. I would be very pleased if I never had to say those words ever again because I'm so exhausted and it's so politically loaded and divisive. Targets don't really mean anything to me. They don't mean anything to most people. And so I just find it infinitely more enjoyable, productive and effective to identify experiences, ideas, projects, like things that you can do that enable people to experience what it is. What 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 is the thing? I mean, you can say, oh my god, the you know, the the catastrophe. I mean, and it is freaking catastrophic and it's traumatic and it's de- it's desperately sad. And so of course we avoid talking, most people avoid talking about it and we don't want to deal with it. Gardening is such a beautiful Trojan horse because you the, the barrier to entry is low. It's actually pretty fun. If you throw in a bit of music, a couple of beers and some sangria, it's even better. And, you know, the thing that doing permablitz kind of when I first came to Sydney that really struck me was, A, I was super lonely and had no friends in Sydney. I didn't know anybody. It was a way to connect with people. But there's something to be said about people having an experience of transformation that's just even small and seeing what you can do with a group of people over the course of a day to turn a piece of land that is fairly like, you know, a backyard, what we deal with it was pretty, you know, weed infested, it wasn't a beautiful space. And then working together with a design, learning things. And then at the end of the day, looking at it and going, wow, we did that. It's huge. And I think that those types of experiences are what will inevitably save us from the shit storm that is inevitably coming our way because People are left with a sense of agency, hope, skills, collaboration. It's local, you know, it builds, it's, it, it's got all the things. So, yeah, I think it's the ultimate. There are many Trojan horses and I would encourage everybody to find one that they love. But, yeah, if you can get people to do the thing instead of talk about it, God, yeah, amazing. Yeah, it's definitely about that empowering people and just starting somewhere like that small step that just begins a ball rolling. Yeah. And it's meeting people where they're at and not trying to impose your, you know, political, cultural, 
gendered ideological preconceived notions of how things could be it's more it's not yeah it's more of an invitation and it's such a nicer it's just a much more sensitive way of doing things so if we sort of look at this COVID time as a bit of a transformative moment and you know thinking about resilience as an active process and and it's about not just kind of bending and bouncing back to where we were but how do we kind of transform? What are some sort of things that people could think about or do to move forward this system? I mean, it's that beautiful old adage, which is just, you know, you know, like you start where you are, use what you have. Like, it's okay just to go to, to begin sort of small. I don't know, like, I, I don't have all the answers. But <laughs> I mean, it's, also just to an extent not expecting someone else to save you and I think oftentimes people you know and fortunately the government has kind of saved us to an extent here in Australia with COVID and you know the kind of anarchist streak in me is very concerned by how much we complied but we did it because we understood that there's a collective good and an individual good. And I think that's what really separates us from a place like America where they are fighting this unwinnable war between my rights as an individual to basically scramble over the top of anyone who gets in my way to have the thing embodied by that horrible, horrible man versus this much older idea which is as old as this is a, this is a conflict that's as old as democracy between the collective good in that we need to work together to achieve a good outcome so yeah I, I don't know I think I would really like to see as we emerge out of COVID people kind of going let's just do it let's try see what happens we're not going to ask for permission or we're going to, you know, manage up our government, which I think is fantastic. Connecting with neighbours I think is really valuable. Like radical empathy I think is something that people are practising at the moment but will need to continue to practise. I'm particularly worried about 18 to 24-year-olds. I can't, can't, yeah, trying to put yourself in their shoes, like the layers of fear an instability that they're facing at the moment is like, you know, it's it's world war type stuff. It's very heavy. So being really mindful of young people, yeah. Mm. I'd, I'd like to see everybody just emerge a little bit kinder off the back of this. That would be good. At that kind of bigger level, is there something that's bringing you hope coming out of this? Yes, yes. I think everybody has been forced to stop for a little bit. And so the collective introspection, and I know how tired everybody is because it's just been, it's been the year of responsibility for everyone being responsible and worry. So I hope that like, I hope that I expect that. I kind of think that everyone's just going to have a really long holiday, but hopefully come back to not normal. I don't think normal was that great. I think we can do a lot better than normal. And inevitably, I think people are going to emerge a bit more resilient. But, yeah, I'm not in a huge rush to go back to normal. Yes, yes, we definitely need to reconsider normal. 
So I would just want to thank you so much for coming on the show today, Jess. No and thank our listeners. I'm Xavier Kelly and I've been speaking to Councillor Jess Miller about food security in Sydney and some of the policy and frameworks. So if you want to find out more information, uh, I'll pop everything in the show notes or you can head over to the website at onebitepod.com. And Jess, do you want to spruik some links? Ah, yeah, like you can, I'm very accessible. So on Instagram, it's Jess Miller Sydney, Facebook, Jess Miller Sydney. But yeah, otherwise, have a fabulous day. Yeah, and feel free to shoot Jess a little uh, like somewhere. And if you do like the show, please don't forget to subscribe, rate and review because it does help others to find us. See you next time. Bye.